It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. We are delighted that you loaned us some time. It is the holiest of weeks for those who consider themselves to be Christians, as our guest does. So it's the perfect time to talk about, well, actually, it's not the perfect time to talk about the Supreme Court, but I may actually ask her about that anyway, because she's an expert on the Supreme Court, but she's actually even more of an expert on her own spiritual journey which has led her to write two books that I would describe as faith-centric and inspirational. Uh, One uh, did phenomenally well. The other is going to, but it's just now out. And it's called The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak Lessons on Faith from Nine Biblical Families. Welcome to you, Shannon Broom. Thank you, Trey. Great uh, to be with you. Thanks for having me. I understand every word in your in the title of your book, and I actually pay more attention sometimes to kind of the subtitle than the title. The word faith, what does it mean to you? I think it calls us to something that we have to sort of step out on a ledge a bit about. It's it's the hope of unseen things and choosing to believe that God is who he says he is and that his promises are true. Um, I think if it was just a simple black and white decision to jump in and pledge your life to something, it wouldn't be... um, it wouldn't be what we call faith, which does require that extra element of not having all the answers, but believing that what you know is enough to move forward. You are a lawyer by training. Lawyers are analytical for the most part. Uh, you've also been in journalism. And while I, you don't come across as a skeptic, you have to have some skepticism or you couldn't survive in this mm-hmm. line of work. It's true. So, How do you balance this need for evidence, which comes from being a lawyer and this skepticism, which comes from like dealing with people and knowing that they're not always reliable? How do you balance all that and still have faith? Well, I think my faith helps to inform a lot of what I do. I do think you can pray for wisdom and discernment because you know that a lot of people in in D.C. are BSing you at times. You know, you've served there. You know exactly how it works. So I do think you can lean on that and pray for wisdom when you are trying to discern the truth about a matter. I mean, the one thing that law school best did for me was teach me to dig and research and to question um, any story that you're given. I mean, you guys, you know, you think about this. One of the things you talk about in law school, five people can see an accident and see it five different ways and testify to what they believe is completely truthful and have five different versions of the story. So I think DC is a lot like that too. So the old trust, but verify adage is very helpful. And I remember at one point I was discussing this with Bill Hemmer and was talking about being cynical. And he's like, no, I think that that takes on the negative connotation. Like you're going to see the worst kind of in people. Skeptical is good. The word that you used is skeptical. Like just question everything, especially if something doesn't ring true. I think in your gut and in your heart and your mind, you have those bells and whistles that go off. And for me, um, 
I think discernment is a big part of that. And I know that when I'm tuned in um, to truth and to God's word and to what I believe is my compass, um, the things that are off really spark for me more easily. I can see the difference. And I think part of that says about how faithful I am at that moment in my walk. Well, Bill Hemmer is a really smart guy because he drew an important distinction. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a difference between being skeptical and being cynical, although that line can be crossed Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. And the more you flirt with skepticism, I think the more, I don't know, I just, it is, I have not changed my views on the person of Jesus Christ, but, and I don't know who said it. It's attributed to Gandhi, but he did not say it. Someone said, uh, I would have been a Christian sooner had it not been for the Christians I knew. (laughs) That is a very, my wife won't let me cuss anymore. That's a very darning Mm -hmm. assessment of our faith. So let me ask you this. I've got a friend. I went to college with him. He's a minister. He he went on and got his doctorate. He wrote a book on doubt. Mm -hmm. It actually takes a lot of faith to write a book about doubt. Yes. Do you have bouts with doubt? And if you do, um, how do you reconcile it with your faith? Yeah, I really did in college, which I think is a good place um, and time to be exploring the world and what you believe. I grew up in a Christian home, went to Christian school. So I came to a point, even though I went to a Christian college, I was away from home and had time um, to make my own decisions and think about things. And and I took classes too that really probed the faith and, and what you believe and how you defend it. And it sparked a lot of questions for me. Like, do I adhere to the Christian faith simply because I grew up in it and it's what I know and it's what my parents taught me and it's what my school taught me? Or is this real? God, are you a real thing? Can I really have a conversation with you? Am I just sort of blindly believing in something? Because from my perspective and where I grew up, it makes sense. And I went through some real struggles and periods of doubt then. And that's not the only time, but that's probably when it was most intense. But I know that God knows we are human beings. We're fallible. And I think he welcomes the questions. If we're being honest, like we're not intimidating to God, like he can handle it. Like whatever question we have to throw at him, um, whatever doubt we have in the midst of really tough pain or tragedy in our lives. I think he 100% gets that. And I think he welcomes that because it's only when we probe our faith that it becomes to me, became more real to me and became much more personal. So I don't think God's afraid of our questions or our doubts. Uh, I am almost certain he is not. I don't think there is anything. I think there's a, there's an old book and there's a book in the old Testament Habakkuk where he Mm -hmm. kind of does nothing but ask questions of God and God entertains them for a little while. And then finally he says, now remind me again, who you are. I mean, (laughs) who? Have you seen the Count of Monte Cristo or read the book? This is terrible, but no. Can well, you forgive no, it's me? not terrible. There are lots and lots of people. Um, it uh, this I will probably never say this again about anything in my life. But the the movie actually to me was better than the book. Almost it's a rare occasion. This. It does it happen is though. Rare. But there's a line in there. This is a man who has been wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned, and his whole life has been upended. And he was a person of faith and he lost his faith and he meets this other prisoner and the other prisoner is a priest and Mm. he mentions God and Edmund Dantes says, I don't believe in God. And the priest says, that's okay. He believes in you. (laughs) Exactly. And that that is the way that I view doubt that, Mm. that God is not like offended 
mm-hmm. that we are uncertain about his existence or uncertain about how interested he is in the world that he's big enough that that really doesn't have an impact on him. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Sit tight. We'll have more of this interview after this. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. You wrote a book about women in the Bible, women speak, and it did phenomenally well. That's not the book we're going to talk about, but I do want to ask you of all the things you could have written, you could have written legal books, you could have written, you know, I mean, you make a lot of money, like writing about your former bosses and all that stuff I have found (laughs) out, Uh, but you didn't. Uh, Why not? Why, why this? You know, I did actually have a couple of ideas for legal things that I wanted to write about and publishers were like, boring, no one's going to buy that. You may have fun writing it, but that's not going to sell. I thought, okay, well, they know these markets better than I do. Um, And so I shelved a few of those ideas. Maybe they'll come back one day in my old age when I don't care if people are bored by my books. But actually, this was Fox's idea. When they came to me about Women of the Bible Speak, they said, you know, Fox is thinking about we're going to have a book label, at least a short run and try this out. And we want to do something in this space about religion and women. And we know your faith is very important in your life. And so we want to talk to you about collaborating on about doing a project. And I was so excited because it felt like a gift. I mean, they came to me um, around the time of the pandemic as when I did a lot of the writing and it ended up being so encouraging to my soul to remember how people have suffered over time and people the last couple of years, whether it's financial or physical or losing someone you love. I mean, or just being anxious and fearful. People have really struggled the last couple of years. So writing the book in the midst of that was a huge gift to me because I remembered, oh my goodness, these women through time have had infertility and widowhood. They've been on the run from famine and war and danger. They've had financial ruin, physical ruin, um, dysfunctional families. These are universal themes. And so as I wrote about those women from those centuries ago, they really became alive to me because I thought, gosh, women today can relate to all of this stuff. And if you can see that God was working and he wasn't absent in the really painful periods in these women's lives, that there was a purpose to the pain or the struggle or the waiting, um, how encouraging that can be to us in any situation we're facing today. So it was a gift to me and I hope to the readers too. Well, it was. I've never met a soul that read it that wasn't moved by it. And I hope that that's what led you to say, you know what, I'm going to write another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's plenty of material. And then so you write one. I mean, would you describe say it is about families? Is it mothers and daughters? How best do you describe your most recent work? It is definitely looking at faith through the lens of these complicated family relationships. We do have mother-daughter. We have spiritual mothers and daughters, people who came together maybe through marriage or just through some circumstance where God put them in each other's lives. Because I talk about the idea of spiritual mentorship, that I'm so grateful for the women who've poured that into my life. And I'm grateful now when I have the opportunities still to get that, but also to encourage hopefully young women in the next generation of women who are coming up in the faith are dynamic and they end up inspiring me. But I think those relationships too, though they're not blood relationships are very important. Um, We also have mothers and sons and we have some fathers and daughters in this book. So it's a mix three, mostly the parental kind of look at faith, um, the parent and child. Um, But I think it just provides a different way of examining faith in some of these things that these families walk through. And like I said, some of these families are super dysfunctional. They will make you feel better about your family because none of our families are perfect. (laughs) 
So how did you decide? I mean, there are I mean, there are entire books that are nothing except this person begat this person. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty (laughs) of families in the Bible. How did you pick the ones that you thought would minister to people the most? I think, first of all, you know, we needed to have enough information about these families that would be a jumping off point, enough about the relationship that we could then do research into the time period, to the original language, to, I always tell people, I love to go and listen to things online. When I really dig into one specific um, person or family pairing that I was looking at, I love to go listen to other people's sermons. I like to listen to evangelical and Catholic priests and rabbis speaking about the Jewish traditions and really just get kind of the three-dimensional picture on these people so that I feel like I get to know them personally, which again is such a gift. And I hope people will read this and then feel like, oh my gosh, I know these people so much better. Um, So you winnow through and say, this story may work. This one may not. I always end up, I have with these two books, ended up writing a catch-all chapter where maybe the stories were kind of short and sweet, but I thought they were really significant and important. So even if we didn't have the person's name, I was like, listen, I want to include this story because it was important enough to make it in the Bible. And maybe we don't have enough for a full chapter, but it's such a special story that I want us to put it in this catch-all chapter too. So there's a little bit of everything. And, um, you know, this time I think we were all sort of on the same page when we were kind of, you know, putting together the list of who we'd include. And um, there's only one person, I won't tell you who, who got chopped from this um, this manuscript, but there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, well, now you're going to, uh, I'm pretty sure it's it wasn't a Judas. Secret. It wasn't Judas Iscariot. So I'm no, going to no. have to figure out. <laughs> well, let me ask you about someone, and I hope I don't stumble upon the person that was, that was chopped out. Um, did you have you spent much time looking at a lady named Rebecca? The, uh, and and I'm going back to when my mom and my wife drug me to Sunday school. I'm pretty <laughs> sure she was the mother of uh, Jacob and Esau. But mm-hmm. am I close to being right about you? That? Are absolutely 100 percent correct. Did she not like show a little bit of favoritism towards mm-hmm. Jacob? I- oh yeah, she's in this as maybe some. She's in this book about maybe some mothering decisions you want to rethink or maybe not make. And the sad thing is she and Isaac, her husband start off with this beautiful love story that seems to have so much promise. And um, they're to like 20 years into their marriage um, with infertility. And, you know, back in those days, I've written about in both of these books. So that was really difficult because women were seen as that was their role. That was their blessing. And if you didn't have a child, maybe you'd done something wrong. You were to blame. There was sin in your life or for some reason you were barren. So we know for 20 years, they had no kids. Then she gets pregnant with these twins, Jacob and Esau. And it's not an easy pregnancy. And she gets this message during her pregnancy. Like they're, they're basically two nations that are warring inside of you. And the younger is going to have dominion over the older. So when Jacob and Esau are born, it's like each of the parents picked a favorite, like Jacob was hers. Esau really lined up with Isaac. They just had more things in common, but she is very scandalous and deceptive about how she goes you know, above and beyond to make sure that her son gets the upper hand in every possible situation. And I talk about in the book, how it reminded me, all of these stories have modern day components, but the college admissions scandal, um, the case down in Florida that has been playing out where a mom is accused of, she was a school district employee of breaking into the school district to recount and mess up the vote. So her daughter would become homecoming queen. They have both denied the allegations. Um, But listen, there's a modern parallel for everything that goes on here. And Rebecca really, 
really did some bad things um, to try to favor Jacob. And it ends up where there's sort of a point where she's almost lost both of her sons because Jacob has to flee for his life. And right. Esau is not really happy that he's been um, deceived by his mom either. So just such tragic consequences to not trusting God and to trying to sort of one up and deceive and maneuver and manipulate to benefit your child. Um, I mean, I'm sure all moms have those thoughts, but they don't do what Rebecca did. <laughs> no, I remember sitting in church on a mother's day and the mother that was used as the model for the sermon was Rebecca. And so I turned to my wife and said, I'm not really <laughs> sure this I'm is confused. the best example. <laughs> And then she said what she always says, Shannon, which is you whisper like a freight train. Could you please keep your voice down? Oh, no. In church. Just heard (laughs) you say this is not a very good example. But listen, she should have been impressed that you remembered about Rebecca. You knew she was not mother of the year material. Uh, No, she was not. You mentioned Jacob left. He left and then had to work seven years to marry Mm -hmm. his sister-in-law. That's what I tell people. I mean, he had to wait. (laughs) He he, He worked seven years. And then I guess it was Laban. That was the father. Laban was his name. uncle. Yeah, I was his eight. All right. So his father-in-law, like he said, you got to work seven years. But then he picked who he wanted him to marry. Right. And he it, thought he was getting Rachel, the one he right. was had the hots for. And he got seven Leah, years. Maybe. And he no. got Leah, maybe. No, he gets Leah. And then he says, well, you're gonna have to work seven more years for Rachel, the one you really wanted. Oh, my heavens. So there's deception years. all through these families. It is really, I mean, <laughs> I'm just you couldn't you couldn't make this stuff up because it is next level and and to see how the deceiver often then gets caught in a trap later or in their own snare um this stuff goes around and comes around but you're right about Jacob um he had to go on the run and and that sparked a whole another um very complicated branch of that family tree Yes, but I I like stories that have a happy ending, no matter how long it takes to get to the ending. Mm -hmm. And I remember Jacob coming back and he was worried that Esau might want to kill him. Mm -hmm. And so he sent his family in another direction and Esau had forgiven him. Yep. So and I thought that, you know. Speaking of stories that don't have great endings, um, you could have done a miniseries, a Netflix miniseries on King David um, oh and, and his family. So wh- what did you pick of, of the oh my relationships there to write about? Oh my gosh, so much. I mean, I write about his first wife, Michal, who was the daughter of King Saul. And she's one of the few times in the Bible that we see the expression of a woman just longing for someone. She loved David. She was crazy about him. Well, King Saul saw David, you know, who was this upstart shepherd boy who then comes and kills Goliath and now has the crowds chanting for him and praising him. Saul was not digging that. I mean, he was very jealous of David, but he used both of his daughters kind of as pawns in, in his schemes. And so he marries off McCall to David. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, okay, was he trying to have a spy in his, you know, the camp of, of who we thought was his enemy was David. Um, but McCall is all about being in love with David. Um, we don't ever really see that David reciprocates that, but what we do see is Saul trying to actually kill David multiple times. So his daughter, McCall is caught in the middle of this. Imagine 
Uh, first of all, that your father-in-law is trying to kill you, not once, but multiple times. That ain't, and that, that actually ain't all that hard to imagine for most <laughs> of us, but, but go case. ahead. Um, but so how tragic for that, that this woman who is the daughter in this story, the focus in the story is left in a place where her emotions and her um, desire to be married to David is completely manipulated to Saul trying to use it to his advantage and not caring about what actually happens to her. And there's so many twists and turns in that story, uh, which that has its own chapter. Um, Again, not on the best fathering advice, but a good example of what not to do. But I also looked at David and Bathsheba and I learned so much about her because I feel like growing up, what I learned about her was sort of, at least the impression I took from it is that she was this seductress who tried to trap David And when you read the scripture, that's not what it says. Um, You know, the men were off all off at battle, including Bathsheba's husband. David didn't go. He should have been with his men in the field. And he didn't. He was walking around the palace top um, rooftop grounds at night. And he looked down and saw her doing something that she would have been doing a ritual bathing or cleansing of herself. He inquires about her and is told she is the daughter of so-and-so. She's the wife of Uriah. Like, you know, these guys. So David has been fully warned about this is a married woman, you know, her family, and he still sends for her. And all we're told is that he sends for her to come to the palace. She's there. There's no explanation about what happens other than that they are sexually together and she becomes pregnant after he sent her home. So it was a little different than what I had had sort of the impression I had of her that she was at fault. David's at fault here. And we don't know what their relationship was like on that front end, but there was clearly an enormous power differential. He clearly knew she was a married woman and she was not trying to catch his eye in this ritual cleansing that she was doing. But what I forgot about Bathsheba is that she's the mother of King Solomon. Oh yeah, This man who was proclaimed the wisest man ever when God said, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Instead of asking for money and fame and fortune, he said, I want wisdom. I want discernment about leading your people. And God's like, Bingo. Not only am we going to give you that, but I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for. And she raised Solomon and she was crucial in him rising to the throne, becoming king. And he had great respect for her. He brought her own throne. She became sort of a queen um, to his king in this situation, sort of a queen mother. So if you know the first part of her story, or you think you do, if you're like me, you're going to learn a lot as I did in researching this book and learning a lot more about her. I think to your point, sometimes people who grow up going to vacation Bible school or what have you, they may like think of Bathsheba like they do Delilah, that that she was she was somehow wrong. I mean, she was taking a bath and the king of your country sends for you. Mm -hmm. That's really that's not like a level relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he sent. Yeah, he sends for Uriah the Hittite to come back. Oh, and he does the right thing and doesn't even go inside. And so which leads me to this, okay, conspiracy to commit murder, adultery. I think their first child uh, died. I think right. that was what I think it's sort kind of, of payment. What, right. Yeah. But yeah, David is somehow a man after God's own heart. Yeah. And I, I a conspiracy to commit murder. Yeah. I mean, Uriah was killed because of the decision that David made saying to his military commander, send him out to the dangerous place. And it wasn't just him. There were other people who got killed on that mission too, purposely so that he could try to cover his tracks. But what I love is it Psalm 51, which I have read and cried over and prayed over myself is when David realizes the magnitude of his sin and what he's done. And he goes back to God and just confesses everything says, I have sinned against you. 
um, I've done the most wicked things, the most terrible things. And he takes responsibility for what he's done. And the crushing weight of realizing what he's done, I think is evident in that Psalm. So um, the beauty is like you said, God still has described him as a man after my own heart. He used him and his flawed life to accomplish really important things for the nation of Israel. So I take that as um, an encouraging thing that no matter what terrible mistake you have made or decision you've made in your life, you can still be redeemed. God still forgives. There's not anything he can't forgive. And I thank God for that every day. Wait right there. We'll have more next. I just read and wrote a little section on a guy named Nathan. I think if I have his name mm-hmm. correctly, that's who kindly, that's, that's who finally confronted David with what mm-hmm. he had done. Mm-hmm. And this notion that if David had had Nathan on the rooftop with him the first time, that you need mm-hmm. someone in your life to say, I don't care whether you can or not, you should not. Mm-hmm. Great point. He, he had it, you know, after the fact he needed it. All right. I'm going to ask you one more Bible question. We are coming up on what for Christians is a very holy week. And so we have this moment where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never said that about his mother. She was right there with him at the very end. Dad was not. Father was not. Mom was. I want you one of these days to, I I struggled growing up in a Baptist church. If it were not for women, I mean, that's how he was born. They were the first ones to recognize his deity. They were the first ones to follow his ministry. They were the last ones to abandon him at the cross. They were the first ones to show up and say the tomb is empty. And yet the church, some of the churches, you know, down South say, women, you can't preach. You can't pray. I don't know about the churches you grew up going to, but as a woman, I mean, do you ever struggle with, wait a minute. I mean, if it weren't for us, there wouldn't be a story. There wouldn't be a Bible. And yet, you know, I mean, maybe it's all changed, but women couldn't be deacons for, mm-hmm. again, maybe it was just the churches that I went to. Yeah. The thing is, what I take great comfort in is that the Bible and God and Jesus don't view women that way. There were female deacons in the New Testament. You look at Deborah in the Old Testament. She led the nation of Israel. She was not only a judge, but she was a leader who took them into military battle and things turned around under her leadership. I mean, there are strong women all throughout the Bible. I don't know why they weren't focused on. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church too, where men were clearly in leadership, But I think over the years, there's been more of an acceptance of women and what they bring to the table. um, And the fact that we're all created in God's image, he never subjugates women. And Jesus, my goodness, broke every rule of the time by having those women learning at his feet, being part of his ministry, going to the um, most outcast of women caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman um, and many others, male and female alike. But um, he clearly telegraphed the value of their lives, condemning their sin, but never condemning them. In fact, embracing them, um, you know, lifting them up and redeeming them. So I think Jesus gives us, gives us a great example for the fact that women are there, um, right there at his feet at learning part of his ministry, as you said, and that was not the norm of the day. I think everything he telegraphed was that women are just as important in the kingdom of God and equal to men. Um, 
as, as they could ever possibly be through his life, through his actions, through his words and his deeds. And I think God elevates women, um, not above men. I don't think there's a contest, but I think as equals, as people who are created in his image, valuable in their own right. I think women acquit themselves extremely well in the Old and New Testament. Mm -hmm. So I am delighted that now, and I know it's not just about women and daughters. It's about all families and lessons of faith. But I'm glad that you are introducing people to some names that they maybe don't remember since uh, vacation Bible school. Mm hmm. All right. Well, you know, I can't leave well enough alone. I want to ask you, you mentioned Deborah being a judge. I want to ask you about the Supreme Court. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. I, I am so discouraged at the process by which we vet and and scrutinize. And it wasn't, it wasn't just this week. I mean, it's it's been since you say you're a nerd. I would go home on lunch breaks when I was clerking for a judge and watch confirmation hearings because I right. thought it was fascinating. Love it. And now I'm better off watching The Young and the Restless. I mean, there's actually less sex talk on The Young and the <laughs> Restless than there is. <laughs> young and yeah. the Restless. I mean, nobody on The Young and the Restless is talking about defining a woman or sexual assault allegations. Uh, I, what has happened? Well, it wasn't that long ago. I'm dating myself. But you think about back to even like Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. I mean, these were votes that were in the range of like, 85 to 15, 90 to 10, they weren't partisan votes. It was about deciding whether you thought this was a jurist who had the temperament and the intellect to handle this job. I think it's become much more about does this, um, does this individual line up with your own judicial philosophy? And senators have to figure out what is meant by advise and consent. I mean, your, your role as a Senator to do that. And I think it's become much more partisan. And um, I think we know that generally things are going to be party line votes. Um, there are always going to be two or three Republicans that probably cross over. And I would say in some cases you might get, you know, um, uh, for a Republican nominee, you might uh, in the future, get a Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema or somebody like that, you know, voting for a Republican nominee. But um you know, Dick Durbin, who's the Democrat who chairs the committee now, did an interview before, shortly before this round of confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson. And he said, listen, I got people on this committee that want to run for president or have run for president. And so it's about wrangling that whole sideshow. We all remember the Spartacus moments. And, um, you know, so I think it's become very um, performance art related. And um, I think it's just much more partisan and ideological, ideologically driven than it is in the old days. I don't see us going back to the 90 to 10 votes. No, I think Scalia may have been 98 to nothing. Yes. I mean, they were crazy numbers. Yeah. Crazy numbers. All right. They say never ask a question that you don't know already know the answer mm. to, but I'm going to break that. Um, okay. I read an article this morning that had a phrase in it that I had not seen before or didn't uh -huh. understand. It was called shadow docket. Yes. All right. I know what a docket is. It's mm -hmm. and for the listener who doesn't. There's a trial docket. That's the cases they're going to be tried. There's an appellate docket. Those are the cases for which arguments been scheduled or will be held. What is a shadow docket? So this has come up a lot the last couple of years. The shadow docket is sort of where cases go and they sit in these conferences where the Supreme Court justices will vote secretly. We don't know their votes unless they decide to write something in addition to the decision to hear a case or not hear a case. And so there's been a lot made about the fact that over the last couple of years, cases can come up to the court and sit around on this docket while they go back and forth in their conferences 
They'll delay a vote sometimes for weeks or months on something, but by making a decision to hear or not hear a case or to take a vote on something that's not on the merits of it, but gets rid of the case one way or the other ends up being the so-called shadow docket where cases are decided without actually going through the whole process of briefings and hearings and arguments and traditional votes and then an opinion. So it's sort of a shortcut and people feel like "Mm, it's depending on where you are on this, you feel like it's not a legit shortcut because it sometimes resolves the cases without them actually going through the traditional full process of vetting and hearing a case. All right. Well, that helps me very much because I don't know that I'll ever see that phrase again, but I I think Justice Roberts maybe uh, sided with the perceived uh, liberal wing of the court and saying that shadow dockets were, uh, were not a good thing, but I didn't know whether they were a good thing or not because I didn't know what they were. But now it depends on how your case is handled. That's how you just (laughs) people decide whether they think the shadow docket is a good thing right now. You're here. You'll hear a lot from the left right now that doesn't like it because there's this perceived six, three conservative balance on the court with them in the majority. So they don't like the shadow docket right now. If that flips at some point, we'll see if they change their mind about the shadow docket. All right. I'm going to ask you two more questions. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to make one request of you. If you, ever decide to research and write another book. You mentioned Jesus being an incredible liberator of women, including a woman who was on the verge of being stoned uh, for um, a a perception of infidelity. And that's when he famously said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But before he did that, he wrote something in the dirt. And nobody knows what he wrote in the dirt. Mm -hmm. If you go back and read those (laughs) verses, it's been 20 years, but the Bible says he wrote something in the dirt. And then he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I've often wondered what it was that he wrote. Yeah, me too. And I'm not sure any scholar will be able to answer that question, but it is one of those things that I've got sort of on my list of when I get to heaven, like what exactly did that say? But what a beautiful thing. Is that what you're going to ask? Well, it's on my list. I got a lot. Oh, I'm going to ask, how did I get here? (laughs) Was there a mistake made is what I'm going to ask. When you are welcomed in and they say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Um, We all hope that is the welcome that we get. Um, Uh, But as you said, it will be for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you know, I mean, there's nothing as Christians, you know, I believe there's nothing we can do. Like our works are never going to get us there. It's comforting to me that it's just faith in Christ that he's done all the work. And by, you know, clinging to that life raft, um, to that life fest that he has thrown us, um, is how we get there. But I do have a list of questions, uh, and that will be on it. But I, I love that, that, you know, they're all, they're about to kill this woman. Now, if they caught her in the act of the, of adultery, where's the dude? That's yeah. my question too. Like, why is that guy not yeah. there in trouble? That's another one of my questions. Um, but Jesus saves her and he redeems her. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a great story. He redeems her, doesn't lecture her, just tells her to go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. And um, and kind of exposes the hypocrisy of the men who are standing around with rocks in their hands. All right. I'm going to let you go with this one. We've got Easter coming up. And when I think about Easter, I mean... All right. Some people say, well, it's the fact that he was punished or put to death for a crime he did not commit. But lots of people have suffered that fate. Lots of people have been. I mean, we have a a legal history in this country of people being wrongfully convicted and executed. So he is not unique among that. 
And he'd already shown the power over death. I mean, he'd raised other people, including Lazarus, from the de- from the dead. So when you reflect on Easter, it's the holiest of days. What is the most significant? What what do you focus on? Because he'd already proven kind of that he could beat death. He'd already done mm-hmm. it. So what makes it so remarkable to you when you think about it? To me, it's the most hopeful thing. It's probably my favorite holiday because Good Friday is terrible. I mean, if you adhere to the faith and you think about what Christ suffered that day, it's a very dark, terrible day, but you know, Sunday is coming. So the fact that he willingly was on the cross, and as you mentioned his own father, he said, why have you forsaken me? Because Christ took on the sin of every person to that point in the world and to the point of every person who will ever live in sin, which is every single one of us, every single one of those was poured on him because he was the only blameless sacrifice that could take that on. And in that um, covering in sin, his own father had to turn away from him in that, but how hopeful that every stupid thing I've done, every big and small thing I've done, um, it's already been paid for. And then he came out of that grave three days later and gave us Um, the greatest gift we'll ever get, which is knowing, again, we can't earn our way in. He's already done it. All we have to do is accept it. And it fills me with such joy. I just, I love Easter. It's the most positive, hopeful day for Christians and those who believe. And um, I love to celebrate it. Well, I like it, especially when it is close to Mother's Day, because I, I, when I think of of him looking at John and saying, will you take care of my mom? Mm -hmm. And you know, moms are the first to love you. They're the last to leave you. And, and I don't mean this sacrilegiously at all, um, but you and I both made note of it. He said, why have you forsaken me? He said that to his father. He did not say that to his mother. Mm-hmm. She never did. Mm-hmm. So like Easter, but I'm really, really glad that it's around Mother's Day because the two together, I wish I wish there were more said about Mary. In, in the Bible, I just think to be the mother of God would be an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing thing. But I actually you, I actually treat her in two chapters in this book because there is so much to say about her as a mother. I think a lot of people think about the Christmas story as the focus of her, which it is. Uh, and then maybe if they realize that she was there at the cross, she was all, also there afterwards um, when he was gone and they were all in danger of being killed for being associated with him. She was there praying with the disciples and the early seeds of planting the church as we now know it, but there's a lot in between. And I do cover that in this book. Cause I think, um, you know, motherhood uh, through the eyes of the woman who's raising a bunch of other kids, aside from just Jesus, um, she went through some really harrowing things and she was there throughout his ministry. Um, and there's a lot more, I think, that we can dig in and learn about her. She was there, I'm pretty sure, for the first recorded miracle, uh, which mm-hmm. was the turning, uh, which I, I, we're not, I'm not allowed to talk about as a, as a Baptist, the uh, turning of water <laughs> it's into, in there, into, it's in the scripture. into grape juice, into Welsh's sparkling grape <laughs> juice. For your communion. Well, you were already, I know you were talking about faith and I'm more focused on James and whether or not you can kind of earn your way there. So if I'm right and you still got to earn your way there, you're well on your way because you have wow. written two books, two books that bring people closer to the truth. So I hope so. thank you for doing that. And I can't wait to see at your young age what the third and eighth and 12th books are. <laughs> From your lips, right? Thank you, Trey. <laughs> All right, tell Sheldon I said hello and happy Easter to you. God bless you guys. Yes, ma'am, you too. And God bless everybody else. Have a great Easter. 
Thank you for spending another Tuesday with Trey. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcast or at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.